0: turn together for the last time to the book of amos we have completed now after this week we will have completed yet another book of the scripture in our journeys together next week pastor terrell will be bringing the lord's word to us in the morning and then following that we will be getting a series in the book of titus But if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, sufficient and authoritative word, Amos chapter 9, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. And shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there I shall, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, then I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile, and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds His upper chambers in the heavens, and founds His vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is His name." Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Caftor, and the Syrians from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. That they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed, the mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. and They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted. Out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord, your God. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would use this word from your prophet Amos, as a word that we would hear right now. That it would not merely be something historical, something that we would read about. But it would be a word that we are confronted with. We ask that you would open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We've come now to the very end of our series in Amos, and many of you in the past few weeks have made a similar comment to me through this series, either that this is the first time that you have ever heard a series on the book of Amos, or perhaps even the first time you've ever heard of a series on the prophet Amos, and I think... That is because Amos strikes us as a very difficult book. It is a book that is hard to our ears. It is a book that carries with it, it seems, much sorrow, much pain. There is much of confrontation in the book of Amos. And if we are honest with ourselves, we do not enjoy that. We don't like having our faults pointed out. We don't like having our sins called on the carpet. We like to think that we're doing everything we can and that we are amongst the best people we know. This can be a challenge because oftentimes when we are confronted with our sin, when we hear about the fact that we fall short, we stop there and we hear no message of hope. We don't want to hear about our sin because it reminds us of a state of judgment and hopelessness. But that's really not what Amos is about. What Amos is about is the Lord pointing out the sin of his people that they might repent and that they might see the great hope that he has laid before them. It is ironic that very many commentators on the book of Amos see it as a hopeless book. A book like a hammer and anvil, just over and over and over and over again, hammering out judgment. But as I think we have seen earlier, we have seen that Amos is pointing out hope to God's people. And this chapter is not only not an exception, it is perhaps the greatest instance of this. So what I would like us to see here this morning are the hope that comes from hearing the word of the Lord in all of its clarity. First, we will see that there is no fooling the Lord. Because if we are to have true hope, we must put aside a false hope that says that we can pull the wool over the Lord's eyes. There is no fooling the Lord. And then... Amos describes for us the real division that there is in the world. It's not exactly what we think it might be. It certainly is not what the Israelites thought it would be. And then lastly and finally, we will see a real hope that is provided in the word of the Lord. There is no fooling the Lord. There is indeed a real division, but that real division points to a real hope. Let's begin then by looking at our inability to fool the Lord. Chapter 9 begins in a very fearsome manner, doesn't it? I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and He said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. We begin by seeing a God that is hostile. Now, we need to remind ourselves that this is the God of the Bible because it is not the God of the world. It is not the God of our civil religion. The God of the world and our civil religion resembles more a kindly, doddering grandfather who cannot remember all of the ways in which we have spoken badly about him, taken advantage of him, tried to trick him, and ignored him. He simply goes out throughout the universe dispensing goodness to all in some sort of vague and theoretical way. But the God of the Bible is an actual person. He is a person, in a sense, like you or me because we are made in the image of God. And when you tell someone the truth and they say it's a lie, when you help someone and they spurn it, When you seek a relationship with someone and they say wicked things about you, you become angry. And rightly so. So does God. God is fearsome and He breathes out these threats. They're they're very sharp. Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. Now, the capitals are the columns that are in a building that support the roof. In our analogy, we would call them load-bearing walls you know in a building or in a house there are certain walls you can cut a a doorway through and it doesn't affect the house there are certain walls you can even blow out to have a bigger more open floor plan but there are other walls that if you do anything to them it's disaster that's what god is saying here strike the capital so that the roof comes down on this wicked people He breathes out threats. And he breathes out these threats because he sees all things. Look with me at verse 4. He says, I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Now, if you are living your life right now thinking that you can take advantage of God, and there are two sorts of people that do that. The first and most obvious are those who would be among us or in our neighborhoods or maybe we ourselves who think that we have it all together and we don't need God. We don't need the crutch of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need all this faith business. We have it together. You must know that God sees you. You cannot hide from Him. But this is also true for those of us who claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who claim to be a follower of Jesus, and then we sit on the couch. We don't walk after Jesus. We don't try and be like Jesus. We are not open to the Lord molding us into the image of Jesus. Amos has a word here. There is no place to hide. There's no political place to hide. Look at verse 4. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. Now think about this. You might think that the safest place to hide from the wrath of God was slavery. It's it's almost like the way colleges deal with the NCAA. They've done something wrong, and they know it, and how do they try and get out of great punishment? Well, they come up with their own lesser punishment, right? They say, Well, we'll uh we'll reduce scholarships by six. Oh, oh, and we'll reduce practice time. Oh, and we're gonna do something horrible, horrible. We're going to reduce two coaches on our coaching staff. Do you see how we're beating ourselves up? Oh, oh. But you see, God says even when you do something like that, you can't get away. <coughs> You might think, once you have gone into slavery, once God has meted out a form of judgment, now I'm safe and God says, no, I even see there. Everywhere I see. There's no natural place to hide. Look where they go. If they go up on the top of the mountain in verse 3, He'll search them out. If they go to the bottom of the sea, He will send a serpent to bite them. You can't go on the mountain. You can't go in the sea. You can't go anywhere to be away from God. You can't even go in a supernatural way, either to the grave or to heaven, as we see in verse 2. Now, what is the reason for all of this hostility? The reason for all of this hostility from God is because they have been portraying a counterfeit religion. They wanted religion and they wanted God to be the kind of religion in God that served them, not the Lord. We've seen this over and over again throughout the book of Amos. Now, you can understand why God would not desire this. Have you ever bought a product that you thought was genuine but was not? Ladies, have you ever bought a genuine gold necklace And then when you take it off, you have that ring of green around your neck. And then what you thought was a bargain is now triple expensive because it's not real. And it's not just the waste. It's the lying. It's the abuse. That's what they were doing to God. They were lying about the reality of their relationship with him. He was hostile. The other thing we need to remember when we think that we could fool the Lord, is not only does God see all things and judge all things, He is a sovereign God. He is omnipotent. Amos says this in two ways. Look at verse 1. I saw the Lord, that is the King, the Ruler. And then again in verse 5. The Lord God of hosts... Now, this is an interesting phrase. The word Lord here is the word for ruler. The word God. Do you see how here God is capital G, capital O, capital D? This is one of the few places where God is all capitals. Usually it's Lord. It is perhaps the most powerful way that you can describe God. Using His Lordship, using His covenant name, and then also saying that He is the Lord God of hosts. He is omnipotent and powerful. God is in charge. He's in charge of everything. He's in charge of the earth. He touches it and it melts. He's in charge of the universe. He lays out the heavens, Amos tells us. And He's also in charge of you and me. You see, God is in charge of all Of the universe. There is no place to hide from Him. There is no fooling God, so we may as well give up on it right now. Well, if there's no place to hide from Him, what does this do for us as we think about our relationship with God? Amos describes for us the fact that there is real division amongst people. But that division is first and foremost not what we think. It's especially not what the Israelites think. You see, the Israelites had the division of all of humanity figured out. There was us, and then there was them. There was Israel, the wonderful child of God, who could do nothing wrong, and all those other horrible people. And no matter what we do, God has to love us because we're His people. And you see, what this is, is practical atheism. And it affects Christians. We think about the fact that we say we are Christians, we are in the church, and we think as a result of that, we get a free pass on everything God has said in His Word. It's somehow as if by saying a magic mantra, grace, 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 that then we can ignore everything that is in the Bible. We can ignore who God is, what He demands of us, or even what He tells us must be the character of our faith. We see God as only ruling over other people. We think that God does not see us, that somehow He turns a blind eye to us, that we are like that favorite child that can do no wrong in the eyes of the parents You know what this is like, don't you? Perhaps there was one in your family. Perhaps it was you. Or perhaps you've seen someone. It's the one child that can do nothing wrong. Two children do the exact same thing. And one is praised. And one is criticized. It's not fair, is it? It's not real, is it? Why should it be so with God? Why should we think that we can fool God... Disobey God, and simply because God likes us for who we are, we will be lauded. This is Israel's problem. They thought they were different simply because of who they were. They forgot that God was the God over all of the universe. And that's why Amos says here in verse 7, Are you not like the Cushites to me? He says, didn't I take the Philistines out of Kaphtor? Didn't I move the Syrians from Kir? Now, we look at this, and I think our first reaction is to say, God is abandoning Israel. He's treating them like the nations. But I don't think that's what's happening here. He's reminding Israel that he is in charge of everyone. That just as he moved Israel out of Egypt to the Promised Land, he also moved the Philistines. And he also moved the Syrians. He is sovereign over everyone. The difference is not that he pays attention to Israel and ignores everyone else. The difference is is that he is sovereign over all of the world. The fact that the Exodus existed, Amos is telling Israel, is not the end-all, be-all. You see, Israel had a thought in their mind. We were slaves. God set us free. God must have loved us because of that. And now we can do whatever we want. And anytime we doubt, we just simply look back at the Exodus and we say, See, if God wasn't going to take care of us and love us forever, He would never have done that. And the Exodus becomes a date on a calendar that they count on for their salvation. Now, this should be very, very recognizable to you. Because you see, our world has this too. No, no, not an exodus. Not a freedom from slavery in Egypt. Our world calls this Christmas. Simply because Christmas happens, somehow God is supposed to change His nature and ignore everything that people do. That somehow the magical, mystical spirit of Christmas, as we look back and we see this wondrous historical fact, we begin to think that just by the fact of that happening, we are safe, we are good. That is not true. Christmas makes possible the mighty work of God. We must still grasp it by faith. We must still embrace the Lord. Christmas is of ultimate importance. Easter is of ultimate importance, not because it's a date on your calendar, but because the feeling and the knowledge and the wisdom of God has gripped your heart. Are you relying on the past so that you might have comfort in the present? Don't. Live in the now. Live in the forgiveness of sins now. Live in faith of your Savior now. You see, the Israelites were looking back to their past and they were counting on the past to get them through the present. And what happened was their present was miserable. They lied. They cheated. They abused people. They forgot God. They had false worship. And every time they were confronted with this, instead of following the word of the Lord and repenting, they just looked back and they, oh, but the Exodus. We can't rely on history. It is the moral present that is critical. It is the here and the now as we live. What does Jesus mean to you now, today? I don't mean what did Jesus mean to you vaguely at a campfire when you were a teenager. I don't mean what did Jesus mean to you when your husband or wife were sick. I mean, what does Jesus mean to you right now today as you sit in the pews? As you struggle with the challenges of life today, difficult marriages, family-strained relationships... Financial troubles, pain and hurt and heartache at work, fear for the future. You see, some back bygone day is not a comfort for that. It is the living faith in a living Savior right today that gets us through that. That's what Amos is telling us. You see, the real division is not what we think. It's not between them and us simply because of who we are. It is because of what God has done. And the real division divides out the people of God from those who have rejected God. And there we see the truth of the trite phrase that we get better than we deserve. We do get better than we deserve, don't we? What is deserved here? Look. At verse 8, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. What is deserved? It's destruction. Have you thought recently that the last lie that you told deserved the wrath of God? That your home should be bulldozed. That you should have no food. That your children should be taken from you. That you should spend an eternity in hell for the last lie you told, Or the last thing you took. Or the last time you dishonored the Lord. Or the last time you took His name in vain. Or the last time you coveted something that someone else had. Don't minimize sin. Sin deserves complete and swift destruction. Because you see, when we minimize sin, we minimize the greatness of our Savior. Because He does not save us from humid weather. He doesn't save us from grass that's too high. He doesn't save us from whites that aren't quite white enough. He saves us from complete destruction and death. He reaches down into the pit of hell and lifts us up by His grace. Everything that we deserve was poured out on Him. You see, we deserve death. But instead what we get in verse 8 is a pledge of grace from God. I will destroy the earth except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. You see, the one who is sovereign, who has sovereign judgment over all of the world is also the sovereign Savior. Destruction is everywhere, but it will not reach those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. It will not come to them. There is safety in Jesus. God's grace preserves us from destruction. It also purifies us. Do you see this in the illustration that Preacher Amos uses in verse 9, he says, Behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. Now, you have to understand what a sieve does. Do you know what a sieve is, kids? It's It's a metal plate or bowl with holes in it. And what you do is you pour stuff into the sieve and you shake it. So stuff comes out the bottom. You may see mom with this in in the kitchen. It's called a colander, but it has a little bit of a different purpose. She puts the pasta in and gets the water out. But the purpose of a sieve is not to drain out the water. The purpose of a sieve is to take good soil and put it in and shake it so that the good, healthy, growable dirt comes out And the rocks stay in the bowl of the plate. It's a sifting. It's a purifying sense. It's more like if you have a juicer at home. How you try and keep the pulp in the container and extract the good pure juice so that you can drink. No one wants to drink nice juice with a big glop of rind in it. Right? But this is the way God purifies His people. He puts the soil of Israel in with all of the nations and all of those who are stony and rocky, and he shakes it like a sieve, and not one rock falls in that soil. It's pure, it's perfect. It's like Jesus. That's what God is doing to you today. He's not just doing it in a broad sense in the world, though He is, He is also doing it in this church. He is also doing it in your family. It is the way that He makes us fit for service. He purifies us. This is what the Lord does. He distinguishes between those who reject Him and those who have sought Him out. Look at what appears to be a fearsome line in verse 10. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. That's pretty horrifying, isn't it? Who here is not a sinner? This is one of these occasions in the pulpit I can say, raise your hand, because I know no one will. Wait a minute. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. That's me. Isn't it? That's you. Oh, but wait. There's more to verse 10, isn't there? All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. You see, it's not just the sinners of God's people, it's the sinners of God's people who see no alarm for their sin, who see no need for a remedy. There's no disaster coming on here. We're perfectly fine. We don't need the warning of God. But you see, the true people of God that see their own sin who, like the Apostle Paul, call themselves the chief of sinners, who know they have fallen short, who weep over sin and mourn, they will be blessed. They will be protected. So I encourage you this day not to treat sin lightly, but to weep over it and mourn over it, to know that God has provided atonement for it. There is a A distinguishing, but it's between those who reject Jesus and those who cling to him for every breath of life. You can't live in make-believe. That's where the Israelites were living. They put on a good act, they had a religious show, and they thought that the make-believe would fool God. But Amos says no. There is real division. Lastly, and finally, there is a real hope that is found here at the end of the book of Amos. The Lord tells us that in that day He will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. There is real hope because there is a king and because there is a kingdom. There is a real king and a real kingdom, and that real king is the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what Amos says? There will be a king over the fallen. Not a king over the wise. Not a king over the strong. Not a king over those who are self-sufficient. But a king over those who are fallen like that booth of David. Now this is the ideal, the Davidic ideal, that the prophets have always talked about. You see, the buildup of, Of David's kingdom is not about David or Israel it's about God and what God will do do you see what he does here in verse 11 he lifts up the fallen he mends the broken he repairs the breaches of the booth of David he replaces what has been destroyed he raises up its ruins things that had been destroyed are replaced And it is rebuilt as in the days of old. He restores its glory. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment, not in terms of an eschatological kingdom. That's a big word. Not an end times kingdom, but your life. Are there things in your life that are fallen right now? Are there things in your life that are broken? Maybe so broken that you are thinking about how you live the rest of your life without them. Because they're broken forever. Maybe there are things in your life that have been destroyed. Look beyond even any repair. Maybe you look back and you say, if only it could be like it was 20 years ago. If only I could have those choices over again. Now there's no hope. You see, Amos says there's hope. God is the God of restoration. God is the God of repair. God is the God of restoring the glory of Jesus Christ in your life. That's what it means to be made anew. That's really what it means to be sanctified. To be brought into the presence of Jesus. A real king to rule over us. A king over everyone. You see how he says... They will possess the remnant of Edom and the nations, all the nations that are called by my name. Now, Edom is Esau. Edom is the prototype of the rebel against God. And Amos says, he will even possess Edom. But he uses an odd figure here. Do you see it? He says, Israel will possess Edom. Now, this doesn't sound like a glory end times kind of statement, right? Israel will rule over, will conquer some other enemy. This is an Old Testament military metaphor that manifests itself in the New Testament and in your day and mine in missions. Missions work is our military work. It is the way we conquer the nation's for Jesus, It is the way we conquer the earth for Jesus. It is the way the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to gather to the Lord a people. Jesus is a king not only over us, but over everything. Lastly and finally, we see real hope in the kingdom that is coming. Do you see these wonderful words in verses 13 through 15? Behold, the days are coming. Doesn't that thrill your heart? The days are coming, says the Lord. They're not in the past. It's not a if. It's not shoulda, coulda, woulda. It's the days are coming. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Now think about this. The earth is so fruitful and abundant that they cannot finish the harvest before the time for new planting comes. The earth has been redeemed from its curse. There is no more curse. There is no more loss. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild their ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens eat their fruit turn back a couple of chapters to chapter 5 look at verse 11 what had the Lord threatened that they would plant vineyards and not drink that they would build houses and not live and now he tells us in this hope that we will plant and we will drink That we will not be uprooted again. There will never be insecurity for the people of God because of what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that the Christian life for you today? A life of security in Jesus. A life of hope in Christ. A life of true joy in what the Lord has done. That is what we are pointed toward. That is why God points out our sin. To drive us to the cross. To show us His true word. Amos is a tough book. Amos is hard to get through at times. But like all of the other prophets, Amos is declaring the word of the Lord to his people. That they might know forgiveness that they might experience grace, that they might, by faith, cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the challenge of Amos' sermons to you today. Follow the Lord Jesus. There you will find hope and joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord We thank you, we thank you that you've used a simple man like Amos to remind us that we need the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, please help us to listen to Jesus. Please help us to hear his words, that we might know peace, that we might know hope, that we might know joy. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.